netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. The FX Podcast is where we like to speak one-on-one with top visual effects artists doing cutting-edge work. And, and there's no better time of the year to do that than SIGGRAPH. This podcast is going to focus on the short film that ran before Finding Dory. We're going to speak with director Alan Baralaro from Pixar uh, about the short film Piper. And joining me here today to discuss SIGGRAPH, visiting the United States, Mike Seymour. Welcome to our political nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, now, coming up uh, later in the show, we're going to be uh, going through an interview I did uh, with Alan uh, discussing uh, his amazing short film. It's just a, a really incredibly wonderful thing, the way that Pixar does these short films before uh, the major features. And every once in a while, there's a super gem that comes along. I mean, there's been some great ones. Um, Pesto was a really good one. I I remember that with the... um, And there's just been a bunch, right? But every once in a while, you get one uh, like uh, Piper, which is really knockout. I mean, for me personally, it kind of almost overshadows the the main feature in a, not in a story sense, I guess, but just in like a a memorable uh, moment. It's just one of those beautiful... um, Pixar moments. And so if you've seen uh, that film, you'll you'll really want to hear this interview coming up a little later in this podcast because uh, for about half an hour, I guess, we'll be talking to the director about how he did it and the technical side of the things that he has done. A heck of a nice guy. And oh, that's uh, great. I really enjoyed that interview. I love the um, shorts too because they really push technology for Pixar and they, they tend to use them as a development. I remember first seeing this film with um, still frames that they started posting and mm-hmm. I was just blown away. Yeah, no, and actually it started out, um, as you'll hear in the interview when we get to it later, as a test. And uh, the test was, uh, you know, a, to with a bird. And that bird test just kept on growing to a point that they suddenly decided to make it um, into uh, a short. And then taking a page out of um, Wally, they decided to do it without dialogue. And so it's just a magnificent piece of animation, just spectacular. We discuss everything from virtual cinematography to um, to the technical aspects of making the the waves with eyebrow tech from their um, face pipeline. Very cool, very cool. Well, obviously you're in town for SIGGRAPH, yeah. which I'm very excited about. So I wanted to get your take on... You know, let's start off with papers. What's uh, what are you looking at? Well, obviously at uh, at the site we've been posting a few things about uh, papers that are coming up. Um, there's a bit of an arms race going on in uh, faces, and obviously faces. I mean, very close to my heart. That's certainly what I'm uh, doing my PhD in at the moment. And faces are in the in, in two senses are really impactful at the moment. One is real time faces in terms of like being able to uh, you know actually sit down in front of a camera and have uh, something being sort of effectively puppeteered in real time. And the other is uh, technology to just to improve the face pipeline if you're going for a non real time render. And so up on uh, FX Guide at the moment we have I think just a remarkable um, intro to one of those papers, which is uh, from the guys at the uh, Max Planck Institute. Now this is. Uh, a German research group does spectacularly great work. And you might have seen them, Jeff. They're quite sort of popular around YouTube and stuff because they did facial reenactment of uh, Obama and of Schwarzenegger. And so the idea is not real time, but what you're doing is tracking my face, working out my face to a level that would allow you to get a nuanced level and fine detail. Now, this is important. It's not just a kind of a coarse mask. It's actually my wrinkles, my um, kind of micro kind of uh, detail on the face that really is impactful. <clears throat> and then they apply that to the same technique, but this time just done from a YouTube clip, say. 
And what's significant about this is that we've done a lot of work in the past looking at taking stuff when it's, I don't know, coming off a, you know, light stage or, um, you know, like a multi-stereo camera rig or a whole lot. This is, this is like a YouTube clip. <laughs> you know, Existing piece of video. Yeah, and, and it does that by um, We're ready for some really cool too, stuff. Yeah. So I had an, a great time geeking out with the Max Planck Institute guys uh, on that. But there's a similar paper uh, that's obviously different because they've both been accepted into SIDGRAPH coming out from our friends at... Um, Disney Zurich, and so they have a, a similar thing from mono video. So this, in this area of being able to process mono, mono video interfaces, that's a really, really big area. So uh, that, and there's also something happening in DigiPro uh, before this, which is from Weta's work with um, uh, doing facial reconstruction. So um, that's like three, I think there's like a fourth or fifth paper that I can think of that are all um, sort of tackling this area. So it's, it's very applicable to us in many levels, um, but it goes across almost every aspect of SIDGRAPH because there's going to be stuff like this in the real-time live. There's stuff, as I said, at DigiPro, which is the conference happened before. There um, are multiple papers being presented as technical papers. Um, yeah, it's really an exciting area. It's pretty cool because this stuff was shown a few years ago and it was kind of like immature. It was early. And now to see it more mature... And not, not like you say, multiple papers from different angles and stuff. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. And the, the Chinese team have been doing spectacular work. And I, we did a big story on them, I think, at last year's SIDGRAPH. Uh, and they're back again. And that team uh, was the ones that, I guess, first really knocked my socks off when I saw them in um, SIDGRAPH Asia in China. And they'd been, again, building up. And initially their work was, uh, you know, you need like an hour or two to get a good um, setup. And then it went from that to instant. And they're using um, deep... Uh, learning deep sort of techniques. I'm going <laughs> to be careful here. We're not talking about deep compositing, which is obviously a, a depth-based uh, pipeline. What we're talking about is deep learning, which is to say you get a bunch of um, data effectively that's correctly resolved and you learn from that so that you can apply it to new things. And I'd have to say if, if there was an overall underlying tech, that would be my vote for this year's kind of winning tech, it's going to be deep learning, neural networks, um, decision forests. That's the stuff that, you know, we, we've, we've isolated this before, but faces are like, if you like at the coalface, sorry, bad pun, but if you know what I mean, like faces are the thing that we would use directly. In other words, we want a better face. We want to do real-time faces, this kind of stuff. The, the, the most significant new tech under the hood would be the... Um, the deep learning, the compositing. And, and I've got to say that AI tech is, is hot everywhere. And I mean everywhere. Like a year or so ago, we did a thing at FX PhD about um, deep learning for fluid sims. I mean, who thought, right? And then obviously the next one we're expecting to see, I don't know if we'll see it this year, but we might. It's um, using deep learning for cloth, for hair, for a whole lot of the other sims. And then on top of that, you've got, it, as I say, for faces, um, there'll be a lot of, uh, I mean, I think it's the biggest thing that's going to happen to our industry in the last decade. So that's the, the sort of the – I'm trying to hunt for that under, this, under the surface. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, long answer to a simple question. I wonder if that will impact um, some of the transition to cloud stuff too, needing more and more power to process some of that stuff. Well, yes and no. I mean, in a sense, the idea of the deep learning, and if we think about it just – by the fluid sims example, because that's from a couple of years ago. So you, 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 know, you effectively do a bunch of fluid sims and you show it um, and it learns from doing those. But doing the fluid sims takes a long time. And so, yes, you might use uh, cloud processing there. But when it comes to actually running the fluid sim as a deep learning solution, 
because it's using a decision tree or decision mm-hmm. forest, in other words, multiple decision trees, it actually runs really, really fast. And so then it's a GPU thing. And then you don't want the cloud so right. much as you just want a GPU on the box that you're on because you're down from minutes, if not hours, to sort of, you know, fractions of a second. Yeah, in fact, wasn't somebody showing, uh, when I mentioned that thing about the faces from a couple of years ago, wasn't somebody showing an iPhone version of that at some point too? Yeah, no, they absolutely were. But I think the, the key is like once you've set it up, that's really, really hard. Being able to make the sort of second-to-second decisions allows you to do the real-time stuff. So not not all of this um, is applicable. I mean, we're talking with really huge brushstrokes here. And, and obviously, there are at least four or five approaches, major approaches to AI out there of which um, neural nets and, and the stuff we're discussing is only one of them. But that being said, you know, this idea that we have a constrained problem and we solve that constrained problem, give it a huge amount of data to absorb and learn from so that when it goes to make decisions, it can do that um, really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. It's kind of what we want, right? We want the iterative stage. So you could be setting up something before you got something offset, knowing that there's going to be this character running through this bit of water or whatever it is, and you don't know what it's going to be yet because you haven't shot it, but that's the time that you've got time. So you (laughs) do a lot of stuff. And then you come back later and say, okay, now I've got it. Now I can iterate through that really, really quickly uh, inside the constraints. It's not, it's not, um, it's not physically based uh, plausible to the same level. And you're going to get like a tighter solution to some of these things. I'm thinking about water now. But it's completely plausible. Um, and then in other areas like the faces, the distinguishable area between what you would say is, you know, mathematically 100% true and... Uh, I mean, there is no difference. Like it's a, in some instances of the application of the technology, as in saying Sims, you can really see a kind of like, okay, well, that's not quite nailing it for a couple of reasons. And yet in the faces area, it's the opposite. It's like, wow, I can only see you getting to this level of um, fidelity by having some really clever um, uh, stuff. And the other thing about faces is we just have a lot of faces. Like there's a lot of face data out there. Uh, so you can actually train systems. But, I mean, it's, it's a huge topic. But, yeah, it's definitely one of the ones that I think are going to be um, of real interest. And if you actually want to see that kind of materialising, um, and not necessarily deep learning now, but just like sort of why, where the state of the art of real time is, um, there's nothing better than real time live. So that's like uh, 5.30 to 7.30, I think, Tuesday night. And uh, there is a bunch of really great presentations this year. There's one um, from House of Moves which I'm looking forward to. But the other one is the guys from Epic and Ninja Theory. Now, we cover them again at FX Guide, really extensively at FMX. And I can just sort of hint right now that there's a new thing that they'll be showing at uh, Real Time Live on that Tuesday night, which isn't the same thing as FMX. And uh, I think the stuff that um, Kim's team, Kim Lavery at, uh, at Epic is doing is just spectacularly good. And there's a bunch of companies involved that really know their stuff. But yeah, Ninja Theory... And Epic will be one to watch at Real Time Live. Very cool, very cool. Any other papers you want to shout out or you want to move on to talks? Um, well, I guess uh, we also uh, on FX Guide um, highlighted the work by Paul DeBevick's team in the previous podcast, uh, if you remember. And so that's really good work. And we've had some interesting discussions on that on uh, Twitter. So for those of you that listen to that podcast, you'll know it's a better way of capturing light and also of replicating that light in, say, a light stage. And some interesting people um, posting questions to me online about, well, how does that affect spectral rendering or does it affect spectral rendering? And, uh, you know, the implications for this in terms of being able to do stuff in, in post. And, of course, 
it's designed so that you can hook up the lights um, more accurately to the lighting of an environment, even when that lighting environment at the source or at the replication stage involves LEDs. But if you think about it, there are, you know, anything that gets things more accurate means it's easier to match. And so it isn't actually a problem of spectral rendering. It's a problem of spectral um, reproduction. And so you basically can get better stuff that fits in. But anyway, you can find out a bunch more about that. That's like, I think, on Monday, the first up, nine o'clock, um, which should be good. Um, I already mentioned DigiPro, which uh, is on the Saturday before SIDGRAPH. So SIDGRAPH effectively starts on the Sunday. And uh, that's at the uh, Disney Grand Californian. And that's a kind of separate kind of yeah, You've always enjoyed DigiPro. I've never gone, but you've gone every year, I think. Yeah, and I have. I've kind of actually become their unofficial or official photographer. Ah. Mainly because the first year I was the only one with a camera. <laughs> and then I just kept on taking photos for the guys. And they're great. Um, really, really great guys. And last year, if you remember, we spoke to the head of R&D from Weta following that. Um, but this year uh, we'll be tracking some stories there, including that one I said from Weta on... Um, on their face pipeline. So that'll be good. And then, um, I mean, there are a ton of really good papers coming up uh, in, in a bunch of sessions. I'm pretty much got them spattered all the way through the conference, to tell you the honest truth. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. And then, of course, there's production talks. There's a bunch of good ones this year with, um, um, you know, The Finding Dory. Cap- yeah, you've got Captain America as well. Captain yeah. America, um, Star Wars. Yeah, well, a Star, Star Trek. There's one. Trek. Yep. Yeah, we think there's we a think Star it, Trek one on yeah, Wednesday. It's not on the SIGGRAPH app currently, but that updates all the time, so yeah, we'll see. But uh, we've got a story um, coming out about the new Star Trek Beyond, which was cool. I went to the Sydney premiere of that, had a whale of a time. Saw great a bunch fun. of pictures there, yeah, it was cool. Yeah, it was great fun. That was the first public showing of the film, and they had, I'm going to say, five or six of the stars and uh, the director. So that was, um, that was really good fun. But anyway, yeah, that's coming up on the Wednesday. Um, but the other one that's relevant, of course, to this podcast is that on the Sunday at 2 p.m., there's the Life is Shorts session. Now, that's um, mm. invited content in the sense that it's not like a technical paper that had to be peer-reviewed. But that's uh, kicking off the uh, Piper stuff. And then Piper also appears again in terms of its sea water stuff at 11 o'clock on Tuesday with a tall glass of water, I think it is. Yeah, right? something tall, like that. Tall drink of water. Tall drink like of that, water, yeah. I think it is, yeah. Something like that. Um, and those are at least a couple of those sessions that are, that are good. But, you know, there's, uh, yeah, there's a bunch of interesting things. And there's, then there's events too. There's um, we, a lot of good stuff, a lot of well, good opportunity for networking and socializing. And it's Anaheim, so the crowds aren't as bad as the bigger I, show. I've got to say, I'm a bit, I'm really looking forward to the NASA keynote. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm yeah. a bit of a geek, but yeah, 11 o'clock on Monday, there's the NASA keynote. And I've been trying to hold off having anything else that clashes with that because, man, I think that'd be really interesting. You know, it's very funny. The, um, I went to one of the production summit things, uh, VESs, and, uh, you know, the keynote was some guy from NASA. And I was like, oh, whatever, you know. I was like, I- I'm a big NASA geek myself, but I was just kind of like, I don't know how this fits. And it turned out to be just a spectacular talk. The guy was just so inspirational and um, interesting. So I- I'm looking forward to that too. Do you remember at one of the first ever VESs we went to, and they were like, this is uh, the year that there were several films about going to Mars, like, you know, Mission yeah. to Mars, whatever. And they're like, okay, here are the Mission to Mars shots. And then I like, had something else. And then they're like, and that sort of reminiscent, that takeoff sequence reminiscent of Apollo 13. And they played Apollo 13 clips from, I think, Digital Domain, right? Yeah, yeah. And then they said, and so now our next speaker to comment on the realism, that is Buzz Aldrin. Yeah. And then Buzz came up to discuss totally how Totally unannounced, like... yeah. It's like, well, that was Apollo 13. I was on 11 and, you know, the vibration was like this, but that wasn't quite right. And we were just there, jaws on the ground. Yeah, I remember that. That was over at the Academy, I think, over in... Uh, yeah, and remember they also had the Mars rover? 
Yeah, like, that's right. This is the Mars rover that's currently on Mars, and this is the one we stuck in Utah to see if it would work. We didn't tell anyone it was there, so they didn't go nick it. <laughs> yeah, that was an amazing. That was back. Those were some really early sessions. I think that, that was uh, the first, wasn't it? Because it was the it was. Star Wars session that had um, the four supervisors from. We're showing our age now, but yes. the four supervisors from Episode Jar Jar. Yes, I remember specifically because it's one of the only times I've been at a conference where people were actively seeking autographs from people. You're not going to go there, are you? Hmm? You're no. Not go the story no, no, no. Of, okay, no, 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 no. But, All right, I'll yeah. confess it. I do actually have a Cinefix issue with Jar Jar on the cover with all four supervisors having autographed it. Yes, yeah. I know, I know, very embarrassing. But I remember there was lines for people for Buzz Aldrin and also yeah, for yeah. the supervisors. It was just like, wow, I've never seen this before. This is cool. Yeah, so that's, um, that's happening. Um, there's some really interesting production rendering stuff we're going to try and get a handle on. There's um, a production rendering session kind of early in the week. I think it's 3 o'clock on Monday, which is the state of uh, rendering in 2016. I'm pretty sure that is. But then there's what makes a production renderer on Wednesday at 9 a.m. So the first one is kind of guys like, uh, you know, good guys and stuff, but they're, they're not the sort of most obvious. Um, actually, I think the 3 o'clock one is the state of cloud rendering. And then there's another one uh, in addition to that. So there's like about three or four of these uh, render sessions spread out through. And then the, the second one, the one on the Wednesday I mentioned, um, isn't cloud rendering. It's your sort of hardcore community like the Arnold team and and uh, and stuff and NVIDIA's there and Pixar is there. And so that's Blue Sky. I mean, it's really a good session on the uh, Wednesday morning. But yeah, I mean, production rendering obviously is huge. I'm not going to be around, but on we didn't mention earlier when we were talking about uh, movies. Star Wars is having a Force Awakenings one on 3.45 on the Thursday Thursday, afternoon. yeah. There's a Deadpool one on I think that's very tempting to get people to stay late on Thursday. Yeah, I'm just going to have to go back to Oh, home. the Deadpool. I, yeah, I just saw that one. I, I missed that one the first time through the list. I was like, I enjoyed that film. And then we've got Disney with uh, Jungle Book on oh, Tuesday yeah. at 3.45. That's a must-see. There's a lot of 3.45s that are worth seeing. Yeah. The... The fun one, we, I guess we didn't mention earlier, is Sunday night at the uh, 6 o'clock technical papers fast forward, which is always a hoot. Right? Always a hoot. Just <laughs> I have a tolerance level. I can only usually make about an hour of it, but yeah. it's always entertaining. Sometimes they're disappointing because they're so hard to decipher mm-hmm. and like the audio is bad and you're just thinking you're presenting to the graphics community and you can't get your visuals and your audio right, but other times they just polished masterpieces of little humor. The only problem is there's usually so fast that if you're trying to like go, oh, I want to check that one out now, it's like by the time you find it in your thing, yeah. Yeah, it's like, ah, but... Um, Aces is back. They've got a thing on Wednesday morning, um, an update on uh, Aces, and obviously the Aces CG uh, version of Aces is the one that we've been really interested in, the sort of slightly... I like to think of it as the... Is the open EXR version, right? Like everyone wants floating point, but you actually use half float. And like everyone wants ACES, but you actually want ACES CG. Um, anyway, that's at 10.30 on the, on the Wednesday. I'm jumping around a lot, but... Yeah. No, but I, wanted, I, I had that on my list too because uh, I went to the one last year and uh, found it very interesting. And I want to see what they've done now from going forward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is... Um, it is the birds of a feather are like kind of an interesting bunch of stuff. Like the um, there's the one for global VFX pipelines, which John uh, normally goes yeah. to try and tag along. And uh, yeah, the birds of the feather be, are more casual, like just a room full of people yeah. talking about stuff. It's not as 
it's not a talk. It's not a, it's more like people sharing experiences. I mean, there's people on the panel, but it's like the union one. The union, there's a union one again this time. And you I think know, that's on two o'clock on Wednesday. 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 Yep, two yeah. Yeah. That one. Uh, and you know what it is, is usually a panel and, but they're, but it's much more interactive and much more open and people bring up questions and I find them very interesting. Yeah, we were at the ACES one last year and I remember we were discussing the problem of getting people to get metadata through. It's all very well having these really great pipelines but if you're losing a lot of metadata, can't the Academy address getting stuff not stripped when it gets transcoded? Yeah. I, I don't know if I'll get to that one this year um, only because I might want to go to the Finding Nemo session which is like around the same time. But that's the thing, isn't it, Jeff? Like there's always yeah. two or three things on at the same time. Yeah, the good thing is we got... All three of us will be there so we can divide and conquer somewhat. Now, we also have a bunch of interviews we'll be doing and following up on stuff, but I guess we should uh, go to this week's interview, which is this terrific uh, rundown on um, the short, as we said, before uh, Finding Dory and uh, just a visual feast. You know, it's really funny because I first heard about this, and usually we hear about these things early, but I first heard about this actually from following Adrian Ballou, the musician from King Crimson and... The Bears and a bunch of other bands. Um, oh yeah, tell me about this. So I follow him on Facebook because I've I don't know him, but he produced a band that I worked with years ago. Well, um, you're, you're pretty heavily into music. You're kind of yeah. Uh, no, no, I definitely look up to you. You've got really good taste. And he um he started posting about his experience up at Skywalker doing the score for Piper, and I was like Piper, and he posted an image, and I went, oh my god, that's beautiful. And then I started doing some digging, found more images, and he just. If you're interested, check out Adrian Blue's Facebook page. Um, he posted, it's been a, you have to scroll back a bunch, but he posted a bunch of nice, you know, behind the scenes kind of stories about walking into Skywalker and doing the score and they had posting a full pictures. Orchestra, didn't they? Yeah. 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 For a short film. I mean, it's just so oh, yeah. wonderful. I mean, the luxury that they have with that stuff and, and, the, and the quality. The and, sound up there is just. And especially with a film, like you said, with no yeah. dialogue, it's got to be, the, the score is pretty damn important. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, it's more so than even normal, which it always is. But yeah, it's pretty pretty amazing. So you know, that kind of piqued my interest, and I, it I looks have to beautiful. Confess, I, I didn't discuss the uh, the audio in this interview. No, I'm sure. Well, no, just because I, it's a bit of a blind spot. I uh, I was so obsessed with the visuals. But anyway, yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> Let's cut now to uh, this interview that I recorded just slightly earlier um, uh, with Alan about the film Piper. Hey, Alan, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. Really appreciate it. So obviously I join a chorus of people thinking that uh, your short film is magnificent, um, but I'm really curious. Somebody told me that this started more as a test than as a traditional short story. How, how did that come about? Well, first off, thank you for saying it. That's, it's all been very overwhelming and um, I appreciate that comment. Um, it did start as a test and there was no intention actually of making a feature. Um, I'm, I'm an animation suit by day and a lot of the things I was doing on this project and hopefully what ultimately gave it a unique look was the fact that, um, you know, in between breaks I was, of, of souping feature films, I was, I was, we always push on our technology. It's something we do at Pixar. Um, so Piper really started off as an exploration of, of, of tests. It just happened to have an animation character test a part of that. But can I ask what you were testing? I mean, was it a feathers test? Was it an animation test? Was it a performance test? I was just curious. Anyway, you know, you know what it was. Um, it was a multitude of things. One, one, one. The main one that in the test that Andrew Stanton responded to was, I, I there's, you know, no matter what the animation software, there's a lot of sculpting that we're doing now as animators. A lot of shaping, and when I say sculpting, very much like clay sculpting on top of the model. 
um, so you can get a very particular shape. Um, and I wanted to push that as far as to the place where an animator could invent a character and, and rough something in. Um, you know, you'll always need character riggers and designers, um, but to me, the, the medium is visual, and you want to you wanna express yourself visually and communicate visually. So to me, um, what I was pitching was the philosophy of that, that I took a model, a crow, a crow model um, character from Brave, and I shaped it into a, um, a shorebird, and I did a whole character test just to say, you know, um, just like any live-action actor, you can present potentially a new character to audiences and have them respond or, or pitch that to the director. So... Um, if that's clear, uh, let me know if that, if I, No, absolutely. I mean, in fact, answer. at SIGGRAPH last year, we had an interesting discussion about the fact that um, animators at Pixar uh, are not separate from the modeling. Um, in that particular discussion, yeah. it was around Good Dinosaur and the idea that there could be sort of individual, almost per shot, freeform deformations to add an additional kind of uh, character modeling trait though of course that would not be part of the underlying model but it was an interesting thing for me that that was coming from the animation team not from a modeling team in a kind of a <laughs> over the wall sense well clearly you know tech so we can talk now that you're you're spot on and totally specific about that um you know it's it's also that i think as um as time goes on um tech tech artists are are very much artists and animators in their own right. And what I love to see is these borders and gates between departments disappear, and that's really what I'm pushing towards. Um, what I was pushing towards on this project was um, an idea comes from anywhere. Um, and the more, the more visual the tools are, the more expressive they can be, the more we all can kind of dogpile on that same idea. Um, so to me, you know, on this film, effects animators could animate or make anim changes, um, and vice versa. Animators could shape the sets, and and you know there might be a technical limitation if we talk about that. So when I when I say um, shape the sets, animators, depending on the set of the sand, if we shaped it a certain way, we could, it could really help our performance. Um, and I didn't want them bogged down by protocol. You know, they should be able to do that, and the set, and they should be able to talk with sets, sets folks, and and work that out, and and vice versa. If effects artists, they're they're animators in their own right. If they have a good sense of timing, they need to make a small adjustment in animation. They they need to just communicate that with the animator and work together. So, I'm very excited about where the technology is going in the sense that it's all just artists communicating with one another. What I don't want to, you know, what I, I want to avoid is the, the 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 gate structures that were there um, in the past just because they had to based on technology not being there yet but once the technology gets there um, I think we should always run with it and always question whether um, that gate or that department is built simply because um, you know it was grandfathered in or is it actually is it actually necessary I mean there are actually sort of two aspects to that aren't there because there's that that traditional I'm going to call it almost a managerial approach the production design approach that in yeah. old days was kind of a waterfall you pass down to him passes down to her passes <laughs> down to him which exactly. is um but but then on the other side as you say it's also the technical it's all very well in saying, oh, we're going to have like a more agile team approach. But if the animator is presented with, here, change the C code, then they're not going to find that accessible no matter how much management or the team fosters the uh, the idea. A great example of that, just jumping off your point, was Feathers. 
um, is very expressive and, and a big part of the, of the character. So at the moment you do your research, you realize, um, I would say, a, a, a potential other approach that would be fine is to do simulation and, and, and build a whole department on feathers and how we're going to do this after the acting. And I, I found that absolutely um, the wrong thing for Piper. When you study birds, feathers are their expression. They are their personality, their arms, their equivalent of a brows on a face. Um, so it immediately meant that we had to come up with a new technique for artists, the animators, to be able to act with feathers and for groomers to give us several grooms, not just one. Um, to me, that was the entire personality of Piper. So um, I, I like when the, art, the artists drive the technology and we don't simply let the technology push us around and and limit us. There's, there's always a way around it. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it is, it is hard, yeah. isn't it? Because I, I understand that there was like millions of feathers on Piper. Yeah. And, and the trouble is that we didn't get there because, you know, Pixar of old thought it was a good idea to be compartmentalized. It was just literally that the animator couldn't work with that level of complexity and still have any interactivity. Now, that's probably exactly. changed. But nevertheless, controlling that many feathers is still a, a hurdle. Yeah, you know, a lot of credit goes to the groomer, Chuck Wade and Brett Levin, the tech soup, uh, on, you know, finding formulas that work with that way. Uh, of course, the animators taking on a lot of rigged, rigged feathers, but also coming up with a really cool system of, you know, instead of driving a lot of key hairs, just sometimes a simpler answer was better in our case, where we just, um, you know, looked at nature and, and the butcher charts of how feathers are built and, and built prims um, to kind of, give us the, the right distances of loft of, of the feathers so that we could rough in our acting. Because the main, the main goal we wanted to do as actors was to um, deliver performance with feathers. So even if they're rough guides and we'd render them and look at it the next night, to me, that as long as there's a visual guide, and you know, it's all visual, um, we get to the right place. What I didn't want to have to do is have the computer decide on those acting choices for me. So when I looked at simulation or I looked at anything... Um, as all the cool things we can do with feathers, um, I, w I, I didn't want it to be driven by forces and, and things that um, might get in the way of the performance or feel like overlap. Um, you know, this is not Sully's fur following overlap of an arm. Um, what happens with feathers on an animation level is they actually drive sometimes the movement um, when a character's scared and their, their feathers, it's like uh, your skin prickling up in, in fear. A hair standing on end. That's that's. Well, I think a great example of that is when we first cut back after the water, and uh, Piper is like looking completely bemused <laughs> and frightened. Um, like all of the character traits are coming from the two eyes, which are obviously quite distinctive in that shot. But also, there's a like a, the volume. I can imagine the volume is almost twice the size of the underlying character. <laughs> You're, yeah, you're absolutely right. You're, you're spot on with the technical, by the way. I'm super impressed. Um, yeah, Chuck, that meant uh, I, what I had done, I did that as an earlier test, um, uh, just whether we could make these feathers look wet. Um, we always joke that it's like a wet dog or uh, you know, a cat after a bath. And, and what we did was we shaped the key feathers we had and even took them from other parts of the body and placed them all around and, and passed it over to the groomer Chuck and he was, he was wonderful and, and saying, well, let me take a pass and see what I can do to play with that and, ma and match that. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. It, it, I love those challenges when you get in a film. It's, it's always more exciting to start a film and go, I don't know how to get out of this box. 
but let's just try anyway and get started. I mean, I love that at not. so many levels because yeah. just like I enjoyed in uh, in Wally, which I know you worked on, but also in like ARP yeah. and other things, there's no dialogue. You're getting a comic yeah. performance out of a bunch of feathers, and the character in that shot is like only about ten percent of the height of the screen. So it's not even if like it's kind of a dominant, your eye has to go to it. I think it's on rule of thirds. It's beautifully composed. But the point is you're going to this character and getting a comic joke from a bunch of feathers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, and, you know, that, there's a little trial and error. Something I learned under Andrew and, and under Wally was, you know, really studying vaudeville and not just, um, you know, learning uh, an example of that as Chaplin and Buster Keaton practicing the performances well before you actually see them on film. So uh, what the audiences are seeing are not our first version of that, but, you know, our several performances to each other before we've really gotten that, uh, hopefully that performance as best as can be. Can I ask you a couple of technical questions now? Um, yeah, I read absolutely. also that the, the water that you decided to yeah. um, use what was described as eyebrow technology. <laughs> now, obviously being a bit of a geek, I was fascinated by that remark. Are we talking about about literally kind of some kind of fax rig based um, system? Or what are we talking about when you say that you've got the water lapping up using eyebrow technology? Oh, wonderful question. I mean, it just goes for what we were just talking about with the feathers. Um, the Proton Piper was always to put character first, and the water is a character. Um, one of my pet peeves is um, when they see effects, when other filmmakers see effects as not character. I mean, water to me was a character on the film. And um, what that meant to me is having the control that we had with the feathers and the accuracy and the humor there. So um, I know you can do some of this with physical-based sims, of course, but what I really wanted to get was the timing between the characters in editorial exactly right to the frame and to the shape. So um, I showed, you know, test and we'd 2D out the, what I was hoping the wave would look like, and Brett Levin, our tech soup, had the idea of, you know, that just looks like an eyebrow rig to me. Why don't I just attach an eyebrow rig, several of them, as many as you want, actually, um, for the lapping waves. These aren't breaking, rolling waves. This is macro photography, and it's just a little lapping wave. Um, So what you're seeing in Piper is brow rigs, uh, our brow rig attached um, to the GPL surface, the ground plane of the beach. And what I ended up doing was just animating those ass shapes and seat curves along the way and, 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 you know, handing that off to the effects artist and getting the time, but effects artists are animators in their own right. And they could take that and change that. But the important part for me is that we have that initial control that you never let the computer drive the decisions of the shot and the humor. You're, you're, you're making a conscious choice. So just, just eliminate me slightly because I can imagine somebody rigging up a slider that would cause the small wave to go up and down the shore on um, yeah. obviously in, in line with the, the terrain. But it sounds like it's a bit more than that because otherwise why would you refer to it as an eyebrow, right? That would just be a slider for up and down. Yeah, and you want the, you know, our eyebrows make really nice S-shaped curve shapes and there are rigs at Pixar. Um, you know, it's something we're also familiar with. Um, and when you look at two little lapping waves colliding together, you'll see those shapes converge and create one shape. Um, so it, it felt really natural for us. Of course, you could build a rig that is a S-shape, you know, that any curved, curved rig along the ground plane would be the same thing. In our, in our case, it, in our brains, it just went eyebrow and made, <laughs> made sense. And hats off to the effects artists for taking on that technique 
and also abstract, you know, doing doing the magic on top and 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 knowing when to abandon a technique. It wasn't that we just wanted to uh, that technique works for specific shots and Ferdy Sheepers and his team knew when to you know make it a more physical base cinema or adjust it. But when you talk yeah. about the magic on top, one of the things that I thought just looked exquisite was the foam, and it's so rare to see that kind of foam. Um, yeah, oh, man, and and. Um, I'm so impressed with the work they did, and not only that, it, I think we just felt like we've seen water before, but not at this macro photography look, and we had all fallen in love with it. And, and what I was most impressed with effects artists was the fact that I, I didn't realize when I started the film that what I really was asking them to do was create a dynamic set that the water line told characters there's no there's no other markings to tell you where you are and to show scale. Um, there's no trees and telephones and cars to walk by. Um, so it meant that scale had to be accurate and also where they were to this dynamic wet line that was constantly changing. And what I mean by that is not that the wave just didn't come up to the sand. It soaked into the sand and pulled back, um, this wet line. And, um, you know, they, they were, the, they were the ones that pulled that off. Um, I mean, we really should talk to Ferdy about it. I'm so, I think those techniques were, were really groundbreaking to me of what I was trying to say as a director. I'm going to say that you just touched on the third thing I was going to ask you about, which is the sand, because yeah. it seems to me that the sand, uh, again, remarkably yeah. technically complicated, but you need it to look real. If it looks like concrete, if it looks like something else, we just we're going to be yeah. distracted from the characters. Yeah, and you know, while, you know, since you were mentioning that conversation at Seagraph, I'll I'll, I'll just jump on um, the fact that it was, you know, a lot of this is the not treating it like a pipeline. I, I felt my experience um, as an anim soup was if you to get out of the way of the artists, and I know Ferdy felt the same as the effects lead, and let the animator and the effects artist work together, you'll get something extremely unique. And, and what, what bothers me sometimes in our process, um, and you don't have a choice on a feature, it's kind of one of the advantages you get on a short, um, is everybody can be in the same room together. So dailies for for Piper meant everybody, from lighting to effects um, to animation, all looking at our work in one review, and also commenting on everybody's work. And effects artists make great animation notes. Animators make great effects notes and lighting notes. And um, it all it all I felt like what we're seeing with that sand is not just you know the technical ability, but and the artistry of the effects artists, but also the teamwork of when you put an effects artist and an animator on a shot at the same time. Um, this wasn't an animator doing a performance green screen to what he hoped a sand mound might look like. Um, in the example of uh, a Piper meeting the baby crab for the first time, um, that was, you know, that was two. I was an animator and effects artist, Grant Finley. And, and um, Nick, I'm forgetting his last name, but um, I'm sure Chris can get it for you, um, working really closely together. And um, and hand drawing out where you know we're saying this is the mound the size I'm hoping and changing the animation, I think that back and forth to me is is what's important. Yeah, I think um, Ron Howard in an interview once said that the thing you just have to remember with filmmaking is that it's a collaborative sport and you have to assume that everyone turns up is intelligent and clever and yeah. there to do a good job. That's so well said, and I think that gets missed. You know, when I say that to others, um, they're they're always looking for you know what tool did you use? Was it this new? fancy thing and I, I think it's uh, to defend the artist you know they the computer is just a pencil and and the craft comes in when they all like you said it's this community sport where 
Um, it's so impressive when you see two artists solving one problem, you get so much faster, and it makes the director look look good when really the credit goes to those those artists working together. <laughs> Having said that, can I ask you a couple of questions about the pencils? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just take it that this was in Render Man 20, but I, I, it just looks like stuff that we couldn't have seen before the new uh, RIS. And at the end of the day, it is a very distinctive, real look. And yeah. you've managed to capture that. And I'm not taking anything away from the artist, but I would like just to touch on that. Is that the oh, case? Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And um, you, I think you know better than anybody that the, the artists are, are are manipulating that very well. Yeah. But for sure, we, we took advantage of everything that was at our disposal. I, as a short, we felt very compelled to you know, try technology and take risks that might even fail. Did you use Katana on this? Or did you have the implementation? We did. Right. We used Katana. We used Riz. Um, we used our USD pipeline. You know, it meant it meant a lot of bumps that Brett Levin could definitely speak to. As far as um, you know, it also meant redoing shading several times if 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 uh, you know as we solve these these new techniques. So, because um, one of the reasons I wanted to get there is that we we talked about this idea of the the artist control, but it seems to me that yeah. certainly. Um, if you talk to a DOP on a live action set, uh, so much of the character yeah. of a performance can be influenced by the lighting. And I'm wondering how much with the feathers you needed to see a lit shot out of Katana to even judge whether the shading was giving you kind of the right mood. <laughs> so, <laughs> you should come work with us. You're absolutely right. <laughs> you can't, you know, what ended up happening was the lighter has to, the DP has to be on a project from the beginning and give you a sense of that lighting um, earlier, and, and they did. It doesn't have to be all the way, but the more everybody feels like they're on a set and they're, and they're reacting to what they're seeing, the better the acting performance, the better the lighting. And also, it goes both ways. The lighter was able, you know, Eric Smith was able to say, you know, if you, t you know, the real issue you're having here is the silhouette is really hard against this light. If you just turn the character a little bit more, it's going to be well composed. Um, so there's a lot of conversations, and honestly, I, I wanted to consciously avoid being involved in and let the, the DP work with the animator um, if necessary. But you're right, the, they, there was overlap, and they did have that. And it, we couldn't rely on the old version of just running a real simple anim comp render in our terms with very base lighting. It didn't help us. We needed more than that. We needed master lighting um, to really know, especially when you talk about a white bird, that absorbs so much of the color of the environment and that affects the composition of the camera. And, and on that same um, score, the depth of field was such a cue to scale, <laughs> but also it let you separate what was otherwise a fairly cluttered scene with quite a lot of birds and just, you know, as a camera does, isolate that, like what seemed to be two centimetres or a centimetre of uh, depth of field you had. <laughs> Absolutely, and I, I love the intimacy of that. I didn't yeah. want to... I felt like it added the the, the spe and it, there's a painterly quality to me to how it can simplify and, and simplify the storytelling and any time in CG we can give the director to me like they can you you get these lenses to them earlier in the pro in the pipeline to be able to express what they're after um, the more exciting and the more voices you'll see in film the more styles um, CG is such a young medium um, I hate to ever hear it being pigeonholed. It's it can say so much more and, and have so many different styles. Um, so uh, for me, it's it's uh, macro photography and shooting with long lenses, which is something I was really after. Um, 
and it was challenging. <laughs> so, Alan, uh, can I ask you a question? That, can I ask you a sure. question that I heard um, once yeah. a talk, and uh, apparently this is the talk that um, that Jim Blinn walked up to uh, to you, to John Lasseter and asked him after he saw the first ever Pixar um, lampshade Pixar Luxo Junior animation. So his question to is, is what I ask you now, which was. Is that a mother bird or a father bird <laughs> <laughs> that takes the, the uh, piper down to the water? It's a mother. Okay, so the mother um, shot. And, so- and I, you know what I'll what I'll tell I'll tell you though what I told the crew, which is it's parent and a child relationship, and however you relate to it is what I'm after. Um, it's really nice. I, I didn't want. It, it's Piper's a female and a mom. I, I picked I picked that because of the name and it's a female name and it's, it's what it meant to me. But I never wanted it to be gender specific for the crew. I wanted them to identify with it. Um, and because when you talk to actors, and to me this is important as an animator, it's, it's to always bring a personal. Um, you know, there's an honesty that comes if you bring some personal aspect to what to your work. Okay, well, I'm um, gonna I'm gonna loop back yeah. on my technical question, but. But just yeah, yeah. to follow up on what you just said, no, no, but what you just said, though, you said you weren't going to tell the crew, and yet wouldn't an animator want to make informed decisions based on whether it was a mother or a father? Like, in other words, it's kind of like the backstory to the to the parent bird. Wouldn't you need to know that as an animator? Um, for this specific story, I felt like um, that it wasn't, it wasn't as necessary. I mean, I would say mother... And, and others called that, but I didn't mind if, um, you know, especially with Piper, some animators would say that's, that's a male bird. I'm going to, you know, when I was a little boy, I, I, to me, as long as they, they can identify with the scene and get that scene across, they're, they were doing their job. So I would answer that question based on um, how, how they were, what, you know, that relationship with that actor, or that animator in that sense. Let um, me just finish my technical question then. My technical question yeah. was like that really sh- the 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 because I just it's a composition question really. The, sure. We were talking about depth of field and where I was going with the mother and the fa- uh, the question was once we've established that that's the scene I'm talking about where the parent is taking uh, mm-hmm. Piper down to the water. You've cluttered the shot a lot. There's a lot of stuff in the foreground, and again, it only works because of the depth of field. Otherwise, it would be an incredibly yeah. cluttered shot. But was it yeah. always stacked up that way? And also, if you didn't see that with depth of field, it would be a mess. I mean, it would have to be. Absolutely. And I, I you know, Derek Williams um, is not just a good, you know, DP as well with Eric Smith as cameraman, but also a set designer. And the, you can chase your tail if the depth of field keeps changing. Um, like if I, I, as a director, asked for a different lens, that meant a new composition with the grass because all of a sudden it is distracting. Um, so for that scene particularly, I wanted, the, I wanted the grass blades in at a very high depth of field um, or else, yeah, right, we'd have to lose them and they'd be, they'd be too distracting. Because um, there's a coziness and an intimacy that I was looking for in that mesh composition. And, and you know, as far as the realism, I was always leaning towards the crew looking at classical work, especially Rockwell, because um, at a at a glance it looks it's it's seen as realism. But when you really get to the manipulation and all the decisions that you see when you're in the museum and you're seeing um, a more realistic per, a portrayal, there's still tons of manipulation and um, shaping and you know, color choices and everything, like you said, and the, the rule of thirds of composition that are all adding up. Um, so, the, you know, and the, and the question of those grass blades is we first just put them in procedurally and it was a mess. 
I thought, well, I'll just throw in some procedural glass, and I learned quickly that that's never going to work. Um, it had to be hand-placed, and not only that, um, art, art directed and designed each leaf to, to kind of get the shaping and the caricature I wanted. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us about it. We really appreciate it. Thank you. That was great, Mike. I'm glad you got to talk to him. That's amazing. Such a nice guy. Yeah. I mean, you know, I got a lot of time for animators at uh, at Pixar. You know, you know on their worst day, they're sort of better than I can possibly imagine. That you know, but nevertheless, this is like Pixar at on a good day, hitting it out of the park. And uh, it's a collaborative effort, of course. But Alan really, you know, led that team well. I think. Well, I'm sure he appreciates your kind of questions because he probably does a lot of interviews and doesn't get that kind of questioning, you know? Well, you know, but uh, yes, it's hard, isn't it? Because you, one stage you want to just discuss it at the artistic level, but by the same token, I know you guys who are listening are kind of interested in some of the uh, geeky stuff under the hood, so I, I did push that a little bit. But anyway, there you go. Well, um, if you are at uh, SIDGRAPH, can you guys make a point of, if you see us, saying hi? Um, we always really enjoy it when uh, people are at SIDGRAPH and they stop us and say hi. Now, sometimes we can't talk because we're on a way to an interview or, or we're in a session or whatever. But, you know, if you see us, don't think, uh, God, I don't want to interrupt the guys. We'd love you to say hi. Um, the, only th- the only thing is sometimes we, we might have a blank look on our face because we're not 100% sure. Um, I, I certainly am really guilty of this. Right? People will go, hi, Mike. And I'll be like, hi, do I know you? They're like, no, no, no. But uh, so. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's the face, you know, they see you a lot with the wired pieces and the on-camera stuff for FX Guide and FX Guide TV and stuff. So, it, it, it is funny how you react to people like that. It's like, but we really would like you guys to say hi. Um, now, if you're not uh, going to the show, um, I'm going to be posting in my Twitter feed, which is at Mike Seymour. Of course, we'll also be posting inside the uh, FX PhD FX Guide uh, Facebook page, which is kind of like a joint thing, and of course on the main site um, of uh, FX Guide. So we'll do that. The other thing is if you've heard stuff that we've talked about and we jumped around a lot at the beginning of the intro, I know, but if there's something like you're like, hey, uh, you mentioned something about X or Y, um, just send us an email or, or contact us on Twitter or whatever because uh, maybe it's something that we can throw into an interview uh, or possibly get you an answer for during the, uh, the week of the uh, event. And I've got to say, like, we've got even a huge amount of stuff lined up for the week before SIDGRAPH, which we're in right now, doing interviews that will all be played out over the next sort of two or three weeks. Yep. Yes, definitely come up and say hi. We really appreciate it. Although we have had people come up while we're filming and say hi, which is not advised but we'll still smile oh it's fine (laughs) anyway well that'll do it i think for this fx podcast um check out all the other podcasts we do over at the fx guide site Uh, there's a tab podcasts we do other audio podcasts and fx guide tv like i mentioned earlier and uh also check out the fx insider program um a way for you to support the site and help us continue to do these kind of things that's not an inexpensive trip to deal with trade shows and things like that and everything you do helps us to uh, do it. We've got some really cool beer steins coming if you subscribe <laughs> you at that level. Going on about the beer I know, I haven't seen one yet. John's got to order them, I think. They're, uh, he's waiting for the final tally, I think. Yeah, yeah it's pretty cool. But I like the design. Um, and what else? What else do we have other than beer steins? <laughs> no, I'm trying to think of... Uh, what else people should oh people should of course check out FXPHD and see what we're doing over there Um, lots of stuff going on there so check that out and uh, that'll do it so for Mike and myself and John Montgomery who couldn't be with us today thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next FX Podcast
please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.